informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We really appreciate it. Here's what we'll be talking about today on AOA. Michael Langemeyer, Purdue Ag Economist, will join us with the latest results from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Up, up, up. Record high for that barometer since they started it. We'll talk about that and what's behind those numbers. Tom Vilsack, former Ag Secretary, now President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, will join us. We're going to talk about dairy exports. China is approving tariff exemptions on U.S. dairy under Phase 1. Does that mean they're going to be buying quite a bit of U.S. dairy or not? And what about the impact of the coronavirus on exports? We'll talk all about that with Tom Vilsack. Also coming up, Matt Bennett with agmarket.net, and we'll talk about the, the markets and some thoughts as we get closer to spring planting time. So all that coming up on today's program. But we're going to start it off with DTN's Ag Policy Editor, Chris Clayton, who joins us now. Chris, thanks for being with us. Hey, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Hey, I just talked yesterday about the MFP denial tour that Secretary Purdue was on, going all over the country, downplaying the uh, the uh, chances of another round of MFP payments this year. And he certainly doubled down on those comments yesterday uh, before a congressional committee saying there's less than a 10% chance of more MFP this year. But as I pointed out yesterday, people are skeptical. No matter how much he talks about the uh, not much of a chance of those payments coming, we all know that the president is has talked about being willing to do it, uh, open to doing it, and we know it's an election year. So uh, I don't know. The, the more Secretary Purdue talks about it, I, I, I don't know that he's convincing too many people yet. What do you think? Yeah, he's uh, really not selling it uh, very well, and, um, and he's kind of in a tough position because mm-hmm. um, uh, fiscally he uh, – he probably understands and sees the need to um, to have some restraint uh, with, uh, with the spending and and see what how this uh, plays out in terms of the uh, the trade and ag buying, which may not really occur until you know the second half of the year. So um, he's saying all the right things that uh, he needs to say to uh, somewhat encourage trade to uh, take over, but um, when you look at the um, the price guarantees for uh, corn and soybeans and crop insurance, um, and you understand that you know just a not even a year ago, a single tweet from the president totally reversed uh, what Purdue was doing last year when it came to MFB payments. Um, so later this year, I anticipate that. Uh, the president will uh, send out a tweet or two in some form if uh, he doesn't think that uh, China has bought enough or that prices are not uh, where they should be or maybe he's feeling that he's losing some support in rural areas. And um, USDA will have to find a way to justify another round of payments. Yeah, I think the uh, how close the presidential race is. I think the polls will uh, have a great bearing on whether or not there's another round of payments. I also made this point yesterday. Um, you mentioned that Secretary Purdue's in a, in a tough spot. I think he is, because quite frankly, no matter what he says now, 
we consider the messenger and consider who's really, you know, we know the president uh, can uh, all of a sudden change course on a lot of things. But quite frankly, when it comes to trade matters, we, we wait to hear what Larry Kudlow has to say. And when we talk about biofuels, we wait to hear what Andrew Wheeler has to say. No matter what the Secretary of Agriculture is saying, we know he's not always the key messenger on a lot of these things. Well, that's, uh, that's right. It, it's, uh, there are a lot of messengers in this administration, um, and they often uh, are conflicting with one another in different ways. Um, so um, Kudlow is always on um, the um, you know, Bloomberg TV or CNBC or something like that. Um, he's probably uh, getting even more airtime now trying to... Um, you know, calm the markets, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It's uh, it's a uh, back and forth with um, um, who's saying what uh, in some of this. But um, you know, there's um, there, there is, I think, some concern in some quarters that the continuation and continued payments of these NFP payments will eventually come back to um, bite agriculture. Um, the next time there's a farm bill or, you know, the next time you hear terms like budget sequestration or something like that, um, that agriculture, um, you know, could take a steep bite because of uh, all of these payments. And then you also now have other industries because of the coronavirus. I just was reading today about the airline industry looking at some sort of, you know, pitching the idea of a bailout because of what is happening to them. So, other industries see what's happened in agriculture, and uh, they say, well, why can't we get some sort of federal help like that? Yeah, there's a long ways to go on this and a lot more to learn. But I think you're right on these payments. At some point, there may be a price to pay for them in one form or another. We're talking with uh, DTN's Chris Clayton. Chris, uh, let's talk about the uh, recent National Farmers Union Convention. Of course, the headlines, uh, a new president was elected with Roger Johnson retiring and um, a new president, Rob LaRue, uh, taking over. Uh, other thoughts that you had, what did you take away from that meeting? Um, you know, there's a lot of concern in um, in the northern plains uh, about um, what we might see with spring planting. Um, the, uh, there are a lot of uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota members of Farmers Union, and um, you know, talking with those guys, they're they're really concerned again about uh, what's happening with uh, the uh, water situation up there and, and the ability for them to uh, to plant um, again this coming spring. Um, so that was uh, kind of a theme that came up. It was interesting that they held the meeting in Georgia. Uh, that's you know the southeast is not a strong point for. Um, Farmers Union uh, maybe looking to uh, you know spread themselves out and, and try to uh, make some uh, more connections in other parts of the country. Um, so the, I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, decision to hold it in uh, in Savannah, Georgia. How is their membership? Um, it's going well, but it's uh, you know it's. You have a uh, strong membership in uh, several states, uh, mm-hmm. in the, the Northern Plains and uh, 
and uh, Oklahoma has always been a, um, a farmers union stronghold as well. So you have different states that uh, have a much stronger uh, population, and uh, you know, Rocky Mountain Farmers Union, as well as uh, very uh, you know, got a big population as well. Right. All right, Chris. Good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you, and have a good rest of the week. You too, Chris Clayton, DTN Ag Policy Editor. Up next. Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer with the latest results, the latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Stay with us on AOA. There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ0419GTLL had a 2.3 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgro variety in North Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Each month we take a look at the Purdue CME Ag Economy Barometer. Look at how folks feel about uh, the ag economy and especially about their optimism or pessimism for the future. Well, we can look at the February numbers, and they are at all-time highs for this barometer. And here with the numbers, Michael Langemeyer, Purdue Ag Economist. Michael, thank you for joining us. So uh, uh, quite a jump here, especially as we look back since where we were in December. But I've got a feeling this was taken before the coronavirus hit. Is that right? Uh, This was taken in mid-February, and so certainly some of the negative uh, negative corn price trends uh, were not included in this, and so uh, those will be included in the mid-March survey. And so, yes, this was taken before uh, the coronavirus has uh, become a little more serious since we took this poll, and so that's important to keep in mind. Uh, the February number was very similar to the January number, and um, you know we think the reason why January and February are fairly high uh, has to do with positive trade news. Um, we've talked about this before. You know, there's positive news on many fronts, when it comes to trade, including the Phase 1 agreement uh, with China. Uh, we don't know how, if they're going to follow through with all those purchases, but nevertheless, it does, it does create some optimism out there, uh, both from a, a current situation and also looking ahead. This reminds us of how quickly things can change. Uh, from the time that the, the poll is taken to when it's released, a lot can happen, and in this case, it's the coronavirus. Yes, it, it, things can change very, very quickly. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we do see some uh, variability in the poll or in the index. Uh, you know, uh, just to put this in perspective, the February index is 168. We were down close to 100 last May. And so, you know, even in, even in a few months' time span, uh, things can really move. Yeah, up 18 points just since December, right? Yes. So that shows how quickly things can change. And so there are... Uh, there was an optimism when when you polled farmers in February, and you said much of that has to do with trade. Uh, probably just some optimism too uh, that this will be a better spring, a better growing season. Uh, and while we don't know that, the feeling is it almost has to be better than last year. 
Yes, and, and even with the, the recent drop in corn prices, you know, compared to what they were in mid-February, uh, corn prices are still relatively strong uh, compared to what they've been the last five years. Uh, particularly when you look at the spring of each of the last five years, corn prices were relatively weaker, and so I think that also helps. Uh, you know, soybeans have, soybeans have been very profitable, uh, particularly for about 14 to 18, and, and we're really increasing net returns on the farm. Now I think corn is going to contribute more uh, to the net returns, and I, and I think that's an important factor uh, that people are thinking about. All right, so let's look at the, what they had to say about farmland values. Are they optimistic those are going to improve? Yes, both in terms of a current current land values or land values in the next 12 months, they're more optimistic. Um, you know, uh, when it comes to current land values, still the majority think they're going to remain the same, but there is 16% uh, that think land values are going to increase. That's that's a, probably double what it was three or four months ago, uh, but there's uh, also a lot more optimism regarding land values five years from now. That's been running about 45 to 50% for the last several months. Uh, in February, that climbed to 58%. And so one of the things that's very important to point out is a lot of this recent increase in the last two or three months is related to future expectations or looking at things five years out uh, rather than the current necessarily the current conditions. Just to put that in perspective, one of the questions we ask and one of the questions that that's, that makes up the, the Ag Economy Barometer Index is a question that's worded like this. Uh, would you say that your farm operation today is financially better off, worse off, or about the same compared to a year ago? Uh, and so comparing profitability today compared to a year ago, only 16% think they're better off today compared to a year ago. And so even though the index is up, uh, the, the net returns are still very tight. Uh, and, and so it, it looks like it's a little better uh, this year, but it, it, it's certainly nothing uh, like we saw in, in, in 2013 and before. That's a good point. Uh, optimism for the future doesn't necessarily reflect current uh, conditions or situations, right? I mean, they could still be struggling now, but they, they have hope that it's going to get better. Yeah, and I, I think the hope there is, is we're going to get closer to break even. I mean, I mean, there's operations obviously out there already that are that that have a uh, that the the price projections are above their break even, but there's still a lot of people out there uh, that are underwater, if you will. Uh, their break evens are are higher uh, than the the, the uh, potential prices in the fall, uh, and and so as those two come together, um, you know the uh, the optimism will will improve. We're talking with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer about the latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Now, we know farmers have a pending decision coming up here shortly on ARC PLC. Um, did you ask them about the, those that choice and what they're leaning towards? Yes, we've been asking the last two months, and they're as, as of mid-February, there was still quite a bit of uncertainty, and we asked this question related to soybeans. Um, and and the the, uh, the highest percent we're looking at our county and our co- our computations at least in the eastern corn belt would suggest that that's a pretty good choice. Uh, but there also was some people looking at PLC and some people looking at uh, at Arc individual with about a third that were uncertain as of mid February. And so some people have been are really waiting for more information uh, before they make that decision. Uh, and, they, and they do have a few more days yet, uh, so they are running out of time. Uh, but some people were waiting to see if they had a little bit better feel for what the prices were going to be. And when you talk about soybeans, what's really important there 
is do you think uh, soybean prices at the U.S. level are going to be below 840 in 2020? If they're below 840, then you get a PLC payment. Uh, if they're not below 840, uh, it, it's probably it's probably a, a bigger chance for payout uh, to go into our county. Now, will you have uh, any different questions for next month's survey? Um, we're still uh, we're still formulating the questions for next month's survey, uh, but we will try. We're going to try to get a handle on uh, how this coronavirus is impacting people's operations, and so we're going to try to get a question in there related to that uh, for sure. Uh, we'll probably have some, continue to ask some questions related to trade, uh, and so those are going to be our focuses moving forward. And of course, now we're getting closer to planting time. That uh, that will influence, I think, depending on weather conditions and planting conditions in their particular area. That could uh, impact their their attitude as well. Yeah, certainly. Certainly, we're anticipating uh, uh, the March one planting intentions report, which will come out in late March. And we we have asked before questions related to uh, you know relative profitability of corn and soybeans. We may put a question in there uh, in mid-March uh, related to that. We haven't decided yet. Uh, depending on how we word that, that question may or may not uh, give us uh, give us uh, the answer that we, we think we want. Uh, we, we try not to ask any questions where they have to quantify uh, returns, and so it's kind of tricky to ask that question, but we might put a question in there related to that very issue because, as you know, uh, there was 17 million acres of prevent plant and in 2019, uh, and the big question is, where are those acres going to go? Uh, and so trying to get a feel for where those acres might be going uh, is probably probably something that we'll try to try to get a handle on in the mid-March survey. And throughout this year, uh, a, a factor will be what's happening with China. Are they starting to buy? Are we still waiting to see if they're going to buy? That's going to factor in throughout the year. Definitely. We'll, we'll continue to ask questions related to trade. Uh, about their feelings about agriculture exports, uh, you know whether they think this phase one is going to benefit U.S. agriculture, and so we'll continue to ask questions like that uh, to get a handle on whether the sentiment regarding those uh, whether that agreement changes, and whether there might be an MFP payment coming this year. We've been talking a lot about that, even though the uh, USDA officials are downplaying it. Uh, that'll be kind of a story to watch as this year moves along to in an election year. Yeah, and we have asked a question. Um, we didn't ask it in February, but we have asked a question a couple times in the last six months whether producers expect an MFP payment. And when we asked that, about 50% said yes, they do expect an MFP payment. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll ask that again uh, as, we, as we get a little closer to planning. Yeah. Always interesting to see what the folks are thinking and uh, their mood and, and their thoughts on the future as well. And that's why we like to check in each month with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer with the latest results from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Michael, always good to talk with you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Talk to you next month. Up next, we're going to talk with former Ag Secretary, now President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, Tom Vilsack. We'll talk about the impact of coronavirus on exports in general, dairy exports in particular, and what to make of China getting tax, uh, getting tariff exemptions to buy U.S. dairy products. Does that mean they're going to buy more or just getting ready, possibility, getting our hopes up? What does uh, Tom Vilsack think about all that? We'll find out next on AOA. There's more than one way to measure success. 
Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ1859 GTLL had a 2.9 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgro variety in South Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions. Time for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Weekly U.S. grain export sales largely missing trade expectations. Soybeans coming in under trade estimates. Corn at the low end of the trade guesses. Mexico listed as the leading buyer of exports for both crops in this week's report. Wheat sales, meanwhile, totaled 542,400 tons falling within trade expectations. But wheat futures have been on the defensive as competition from sources like Russia weighs on the market. May corn advanced again on Wednesday, marking the fourth consecutive session of gains, the 14-day relative strength index at 53% on Wednesday. An hour into the trade session on this Thursday, May corn down 2.5 at 382.5. New crop December at 384 and a half, down a penny. May soybeans down four and a quarter at 903. November 913 and three quarters, down three and three quarters. Chicago wheat May up a penny and three quarters at 520. Kansas City May down three and a half at 449 and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat May down a penny and a half at 527 and three quarters of a cent. For livestock at the Merck and live cattle futures, the April contract down a dollar twenty-five. $110 even per hundred weight. We saw cash cattle sales on a live basis in the south yesterday at $113, $2 lower compared to a week ago. Feeder cattle, weaker. April down a dollar seven, one thirty-four forty-seven. May at one thirty-four ninety, down a dollar fifty-two. Lean hog futures, April contract up sixty-two at sixty-four ninety-two. Volatility continues on Wall Street. The Dow is down 663 points, S&P down 72, crude oil down 30 cents. You're listening to AOA. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, Chinese importers have been applying for and getting some tariff exemptions to buy U.S. dairy products, part of the Phase 1 trade agreement. Does that mean they're going to actually be buying more dairy products? Joining us now to talk about it is Tom Vilsack, President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Good to talk with you again. So this looks like good news. Uh, how how good of news is it? Well, it's a little early to tell, Mike. Uh, these importers had to make application on March uh, by March 2nd. Uh, the Chinese government responded quickly to the applications that were filed on March 2nd and basically authorized and approved uh, exemptions for skim milk powder, sweet whey, lactose, uh, uh, WPC, and cheese. Uh, as part of the applications, these importers had to indicate how much volume uh, they were expected to purchase. Uh, so at least there's some indication that they are expecting to purchase a U.S. product. It'll be a, a, a few weeks before we know pr- precisely uh, how much that might eventually uh, result in. Um, as you know, the, the promises that the Chinese have made are based on market conditions. The virus may have an impact and effect on how much product they actually need and how much product they can actually get because of the situation at the ports. 
Yeah, let's talk about that. What is the impact we are seeing from the coronavirus as far as uh, our exports into China and their ability not only to buy, but as you said, to actually receive, unload ships, things like that? Well, I think there are, there are three basic uh, impacts of this virus. First, uh, the supply uh, chain has been clogged uh, because the uh, Chinese essentially took workforce off the ports. Uh, they substantially reduced the workforce at the ports for an extended period of time as a result of the virus, and so that's resulted in a backlog uh, of container ships at those ports. Now, that backlog is being worked down. Uh, workforce is now up to about 70% uh, of uh, full employment, so that's, that's headed in the right direction. Demand is also being impacted, not just in China, but throughout Asia. Uh, restaurants are seeing a, a down a turn in activity. Uh, tourism is uh, significantly down in a number of countries. Uh, even grocery stores uh, are being impacted by uh, people not coming out, not going out. Uh, at the same time, in-home delivery has skyrocketed. So obviously people need to eat. Uh, so they're having the food delivered to their homes. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see precisely how this actually impacts the purchase of food and the consumption of food and and the supply chain. Again, it's going to take some time before we get the data. The other impact is that we can't promote product as effectively as we once did. Many of the conferences, uh, the workshops, the training seminars, and so forth that were scheduled during this period of time uh, are being canceled or postponed. Uh, So that may also have an impact. Again, a bit early to tell. Uh, It's unfortunate because we had, uh, for the dairy industry, we had a lot of momentum. Going into 2020, uh, we had the best November for exports we've ever had, uh, the second best December. So the hope was that uh, we would see a, a continued rebounding of, of dairy prices and, and dairy activity. Um, but again, uh, we're just keeping fingers crossed that at the end of the day, this virus is ultimately contained and uh, the, the shifts begin to flow and, and, and product goes into that Chinese market uh, now that we have at least some importers seeing a relief from the retaliatory tariffs. Yeah, this there was a question already about how much China would buy and when they would buy. This just complicates that even more. That's right, because they, they essentially gave themselves an out by suggesting that they would be willing to purchase up to $40 billion of U.S. product, but it was based on market conditions. Well, market conditions obviously can be impacted by supply that's clogged at the ports, or market conditions be, can be impacted by the level of demand. Uh, because people aren't buying as much or not going out as much or tourism isn't as, as extensive as they thought it might be. It may also be impacted by the inability to promote and remind people that there are uh, tremendous products available to them uh, that they may want to try, especially along the cheese side. So uh, we're just going to have to see. Uh, we're going to have to work through it, uh, and we have to learn from this experience. Uh, what we're trying to do at U.S. Deck is to take a look at where the opportunity might be uh, in this problem uh, in terms of our ability, for example, to use technology to continue to have promotional trainings and seminars and things of that nature. Uh, there's no reason why we actually have to be in the same room at the same time uh, with technology. So we're looking at that. Um, and we're hoping that uh, once this thing all gets settled down, that we take lessons learned um, and then continue and improve our efforts to export more product uh, around the world. Yeah, you could do, I guess, video teleconferences and things like that. Although I know a lot of uh Market development work is that face-to-face personal relationship building, right? So maybe technology can fill in there, but maybe takes away from that a little bit. No, that's right. And that's why we were excited about uh, 2020, because we were going to open the first ever uh, Center of Dairy Excellence in Singapore. Uh, Our efforts to get that open uh, have been slowed down just a bit because we can't uh, get face-to-face with some of the people we wanted to hire. We can't necessarily get everybody in the office at the same time to do the uh, 
the kind of uh, training to get this thing opened uh, successfully uh, in the first part of 2020. We're going to get it open. It's going to be uh, a great place for people to come uh, to, to allow our, our members to showcase U.S. product, and I think it's going to open up and expand market opportunities in Southeast Asia. But right now, a lot of uncertainty, uh, a lot of cancellations, uh, a, a, a lot of uncertainty in terms of how far this virus is going to go. Korea has been hit with it. Japan has been hit with it. They've got a big uh, decision to make here fairly soon about the Olympics. So we're going to see ramifications and repercussions, I think, uh, for some time. We're talking with former Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack, President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. You touched on this a bit there. I was going to ask you, what impact are we seeing in other markets from the coronavirus? Well, uh, again, tourism down, restaurant uh, traffic down, grocery store shopping down, but in-home delivery up. Um, and uh, a lot of postponements and cancellations of major trade shows. Um, we're also seeing the same type of activity taking place in the Middle East and North Africa. We were uh, hopeful to have a series of training sessions in Dubai. Now that's now been postponed to later in the year. Hasn't impacted and affected uh, the Mexican market uh, uh, and the Canadian market, obviously. We're, we're continuing to work our way through those markets, uh, continuing to look for uh, Canada to approve the USMCA and to begin the process of writing the rules for how this new trade agreement is going to be implemented. So there's obviously activity there. Uh, we're going to continue to look for opportunities in South America. Uh, but uh, clearly, uh, two major markets, Asia, Middle East, and North Africa, have been hit uh, significantly by this by this virus. I guess one way of looking at it is uh, that is kind of a delay, right? I mean, the demand will still be there once this passes. It just kind of delays it. Well, this is an interesting thing. So, so when, when a, a, a country makes the decision, as they have in Korea, to uh, shut down some of the schools, so you say, well, what's that got to do with all this? Well, when they shut the schools down, it means the kids aren't drinking the school milk. If they're not drinking the school milk, what happens to that milk? Does it get converted into butter and cheese? If so, does that then compete with potential export opportunities for U.S.? So it has a rippling effect, uh, and it's just going to be a while before we can actually determine uh, the precise uh, nature of the impact. But we have to constantly look for uh, creating the kind of flexibility uh, that we need to be able to make sure that we provide our members good information so they can make decisions about where they need to potentially place uh, excess product. Uh, are there other markets where this virus has not hit that we could potentially utilize? Um, you know, we're taking a look at Mexico, as I said, but their economy is not uh, as strong as it as it has been uh, in the past. We're looking at South America. We're also challenging our team to take a look at countries that we really haven't really done much business in. Uh, are there opportunities for us to at least begin the process of developing those relationships that will lead ultimately? Uh, the administration is talking about a trade agreement with Kenya, for example. Is that something we should be uh, thinking about and beginning to develop those relationships so that in the long term, uh, 10 years, five years, 10 years down the road, this is a market opportunity that we can take full advantage of. So it's it's uh, you got to be flexible. Uh, you got to recognize in a global economy, in a global world, and the ability to transport people all over the world very quickly. We're going to be confronted with stuff like this, um, and we need to figure out how we can best react and respond so that we continue to export and continue to provide hope uh, to our dairy farmers. You mentioned USMCA. I think that's a good reminder because we've kind of almost taken for granted, well, it's a done deal. Well, it's not done yet in Canada, and even once it is, uh, there's still some steps to go through before it's really implemented, right, in, in full force. No. But that's a really important point, Mike. I think it is not a done deal and won't be until Canada says yes. 
Once Canada says yes, that just means that the ink is dried on the agreement, but the implementation is what's really important. It's the rules that get written. How how will they affect these increased uh, uh, quotas, for example? Are they going to play games with it as they have in the past in Canada? Uh, is uh, Mexico going to be true to its word on, on GIs, for example, geographic indications in terms of cheese? Uh, we need to keep their feet to the fire. Will Canada actually replace Class 6 and Class 7 with a, with a pricing system that uh, discourages uh, dumping uh, excess powder on the world market, uh, impacting effect at our prices and our farmers? So it is a, it, there is a lot of work that needs to be done in keeping an eye on that agreement. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in reporting to the U.S. government about purchases in China so that we can make sure that they're living up uh, to the promise to purchase more product. Um, and there are opportunities, obviously, to to look at expanded markets uh, in some of these other countries. So uh, a lot of work that can be done, even though uh, we may be doing it from our home or maybe doing it uh, through technology. And real quick, what do you think about uh, the talks with the uh, European Union? Uh, well, I'm not particularly bullish on those talks at this point. I, I just think there's, uh, again, uh, you know, there's such a significant bright line between our view on science and their view, our view on, on regula- regulatory issues and their view. I, I just, you know, it'd be great if we could get some kind of deal, but I don't anticipate that there's going to be a significant movement on the part of the EU on agriculture. And until there is, I don't think there's much of an opportunity for a significant trade agreement with the EU. Yeah, pretty heavy lift there for sure. All right. Tom Vilsack, President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, former Ag Secretary. Mr. Secretary, as always, good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Bye. Take care. All right. So, yeah, the impact of the coronavirus being felt all around the world and uh, certainly uh, having an impact on trade. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. We're going to talk about getting closer to planting time, bringing some of those prevent plant acres back into production. What about grain already in storage? We wait to move that. Put a lot of pressure on the markets. We'll look ahead next. Stay with us on AOA. There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres, that's smart. In 2019, trials across 10 Midwest states, Credence Soybeans with Liberty Link GT27 averaged 1.8 bushels per acre more than the competitive Enlist E3 soybeans and 1.5 bushels per acre more than the competitive Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credence with Liberty Link GT27. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And we're joined now by Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. Matt, I don't want to start off with a negative, but I have to paint this scenario and I'm going to see if if you're concerned about this from a price standpoint. Uh, We have things backed up right now, slowed down with the coronavirus. We know there's a lot of grain in storage. It's just farmers haven't felt the need or you know the urgency to move whether it's from mfp payments or whatever it may be and if we were to get a really favorable weather window for planting and getting to the fields and bringing back those prevent plant acres doesn't that kind of really come together to put a lot of downward pressure on on the markets i would think so you know the i guess the, the concern we've had all along is that you know, if you come out here with a big uh, acreage figure and then good weather, 
then it obviously is much more liable to uh, uh, to come to pass. And so if you would end up getting, oh, I don't know, let's say anything north of 93, you know, outlook for my guess was 94. A lot of folks are 95, farm futures up to 96 and change. Uh, if you get those kind of acreages in a decent planting window, then you've got a, a pretty darn good start to a mammoth crop. And so I, I just can't imagine that you wouldn't see some pressure. But, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, a lot of forecasters are still uh, considering, a, you know, a wet spring coming uh, to most of us. And so if that's the case, you know, that might, uh, you know, might delay that kind of price action just a little bit longer. Well, we learned last year you... – we can wait a long time to find out, uh, but it would seem like good weather. Wouldn't that mean, don't you think, more corn acres? Well, you would think so, but I mean, you know, whenever you look at these corn trading at three eighty three, it's not exactly a home run for anyone. Uh, right. You know, the spring insurance price at three eighty nine, uh, eleven cents below a year ago. Now, I would say that most of the producers we work with, you know, are looking at a little bit lower uh, costs. Uh, whenever you don't factor land cost in, because that's different for everyone, but you know, fertilizer, for instance, uh, if your guy didn't get all his uh, fertilizer on last fall, got a little bit of relief there, you know. And then, of course, uh, diesel fuel prices have been languishing, uh, you know, down here in some areas that we haven't seen for quite some time. And so uh, I think there's a little bit of relief in here, but at the same time, 389 is not buying any acres either. So, um, you know, yes, you're right. You know, if the weather's good, I think the guys prefer to plant corn. But at the same time, you know, I think there might be some situations where fiscally, uh, it's tough to get uh, to get the money put together to to plant huge corn acreage because I, I don't know that everyone's going to get exactly what they're asking for on their operating notes this year, uh, considering the way that the liquidity continues to tighten. What do you make and what are you hearing of this situation with corn and storage? Uh, well, you know, you've got the question of how long do you hold on to it and risk losing even more quality because there are quality concerns already. Uh, so it's an interesting dynamic going on there. It is. It's very interesting. And what we've told uh, the people we talked to, if you're able to harvest dry, uh, and there's not a lot of folks that were able to, but if you're, if you're able to harvest dry enough that you didn't have to dry the corn going in the bin, uh, then that corn, of course, I want to core it, and I want to keep it in good shape because I think you know some of this corn could be worth some money, especially – uh, if you look at another wet spring, you know, what would that mid to late summer time frame look like as far as basis is concerned? I don't think any of us know what the market's going to do, but, you know, flat cash value I think could be uh, rather robust if you have another late spring because I think we're going to be seeing a lot of areas in the Corn Belt running very uh, short on corn later in the summer. But the corn, uh, for the most part, is not in great shape. A lot of fines. Uh, anytime you dry a corn crop down significantly, uh, you know, uh, six, eight, ten points, it's gonna, it's not gonna keep, uh, it's not gonna keep well at all. And so, obviously, a lot of grain bin accidents, a lot of, uh, you know, things that uh, we sure don't want to see. But it's because of the state of the crop. And I think we all have to keep a really close eye on our bins this year because, you know, if you don't check them every couple of weeks, they can go out of condition very, very quickly. Yeah, check them and be careful. When you're working around them or in them, that's for sure. Uh, the calendar tells us on the soybean side, it's it's South America's time of year, and we know that uh, that certainly has a big impact right now. A pretty big crop coming out of there. Yeah, you know, you see 124 up to, you know, I've heard whispers of 130 on the Brazilian uh, soybean crop. Uh, you know, I don't know how big the crop's going to be, but it's going to be big. I mean, we all know that they're going to have a pretty large soybean crop. A couple of their states... 
uh, didn't have as good of beans as what they did a year ago, but for the most part, uh, there's been some areas that have had huge yields. And so, you know, they're going to have plenty of beans coming out of South America. Obviously, demand isn't what it was a couple of years ago due to ASF. Uh, and so from a world standpoint, you know, your soybean supply is still rather stable. Um, you know, I, I guess it's hard to get super friendly whenever you're looking at world stocks. Now, demand, you could get a short term, you know, kind of a bump uh, if the Chinese do come in and buy a, a lot of soybeans. And I guess I've been trying to tell producers to, you know, uh, to be cautious as to ignore that. If you do get, uh, you know, a bump out of uh, maybe a few sales to China, I think maybe that's a pretty good place to reward the market. You were at Commodity Classic last week in San Antonio. What were you hearing from farmers? I would say a lot of concern, uh, for sure. You know, as you know, last week, uh, boy, it was uh, it was slim pickings as far as trying to find good news. The Dow was getting crushed. You know, uh, commodities weren't exactly doing great. The corn market lost 11 cents last week. So, you know, a lot of producers, I think, were concerned, uh, asking, hey, when the, when's this thing going to turn around? And I think the easy answer is that, you know, there is no answer there. So it's uh, um, I think there's a lot of concern, and for good reason. Uh, we are all going to have to be uh, very much uh, aware of what our situation is this, this year. And, you know, if we do get a chance of locking lock in, you know, some profit margins here and there, I think we're going to have to be pretty aggressive this year because there's no guarantees that uh, those kind of margins are going to stick around if they do show up. Well, we waited all last year for a trade deal with China. Now we'll wait, I guess, all this year to see how much they buy and when. Yeah, that's the tough thing for producers. You know, I think there's a lot of folks out there saying that they may wait until the fourth quarter, uh, which would obviously be after harvest starts, which would obviously be way too late for old crop corn. And you and I both know most of this old crop corn probably needs to move soon. But, uh, yeah, I hope we don't have to wait all year. If we do, it's going to make it a very frustrating year. And we continue to wait and see. Matt, thank you very much. Good to talk with you. Hey, buddy, appreciate it. Take care. Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. That wraps it up for today. Have a great day, everyone. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions.